Good evening, Wisdom Eccentrics by Nat Chan Chapter 3, Part 1 I feel that it is possible to enter the world of Vajrayana whilst remaining English or whatever nationality you happen to be. I believe that you can cross boundaries and live in the tidal margins between cultures. You can be a gay rodeo rider a vegetarian firearms enthusiast, a priest who enjoys the sport of pugilism, a pacifist who enjoys war novels, or a heavy metal guitarist who loves baroque chamber music. You can even be a hippie who speaks the Queen's English, enjoys Shakespeare plays and reads Jane Austen novels. Oh, that's me, by the way. Welcome to my book. Chapter 3 Speaking in Tongues Before describing the journey to Tsopema or unfolding the experiential milieu I entered with Kunzangdorje Rinpoche, there's some background to cover. It'll help in terms of understanding the pilgrim's metaphysical point of view. I'd begun to study Buddhism at the age of eight or nine, although the word study is employed somewhat loosely. I found two books in the school library, On the Road Through Tibet and Tibetan Art. I read these books repeatedly till I found other books. Those all proved far too difficult to understand and so I returned to the aforementioned till I pretty much knew them by heart. As I grew older, the books by Giuseppe Tucci et al. began to make a little more sense, although I continued to find them monumentally turgid, especially the thee and thou favoured by Evans Vents. By the time I set out for the Himalayas, I had the broad principles down from a variety of sources, including Theravada and Zen. Tibetan Buddhism proved the most inaccessible in terms of practice, so most of my instruction came from Zen and Theravada. Silent sitting seemed to be the heart of it all, and so I sat every day. The idea of sitting was intriguing because I'd sat silently since childhood and had been harangued about it by my father. Why can't you play like a normal boy? I was always able to sit and stare without going off into dreams. I'd just observe the colours and sounds of my environment and allow them to drift in and out of my observation. It was the idea of silence that eventually led me to Dzogchen as being the heart of everything. I tried to sit for an hour every day from the age of about 16 onward. The Buddhist Society in London provided me with the address of the Tibetan Friendship Group and they, in turn, provided me with a pen friend, Yeshe Kandro in MacLeod Gange, Kangra District, Himachal Pradesh, India.
So, with that strange synopsis out of the way, the journey begins. September 71 and the Chotabarash, the little rains, were supposed to be over. So much for information books on India. That was no big deal, however, as I was rising up out of the lowlands of Himachal Pradesh into the foothills of the Himalayas, and that was where I wanted to be, come rain or shine. It didn't look as I expected it to look, but then again, I had no precise expectations. I think I expected these foothills to look like Wales or Scotland. If I did, I was disappointed. But then it changed suddenly. Pine trees took over from subtropical trees. Rock escarpments began to emerge. It was still drizzling. The drizzle, however, gradually turned into cloud and eventually into McLeod Gange. The little hill station loomed into view through the mist and I got my first view of a Churton, a white monument which describes realisation in terms of the elements. It was simple and elegant and the gold crescent moon and sun disk at its zenith glowed warmly in the cold air. Yeshe Kandro had been going out to meet every bus up the hill for two days. And there she was, looking just like her photograph. She was a student at the Tibetan School of Medicine and Astrology, and I was to lodge with her aunt, Amma Norga, the Chung lady. What a strange and wonderful place. This deserted British hill station had received an influx of Tibetan refugees and a shanty town had evolved. Roofs made of beaten out oil cans. The doors of the shacks were made of oil cans hammered onto wooden frames, some brightly painted. It was a shanty town, but unlike India, litter free. Every dwelling was enlivened with flowers grown in painted cans. The human dignity, unmistakable in these efforts, has remained with me down to the present day. I can still see that scene glowing in my mind. It's a symbol of nobility and courage in the face of adversity. I spent every part of every day wandering the mountain track between McLeod Gange and Forsyth Bazaar. McLeod Gange and Forsyth Bazaar, as you'd imagine, were names left over from the British Raj. They were hill stations, but little was left of what they were, apart from a deserted church that lay between them, St John in the Wilderness. The church could have been lifted directly from England and sat in charming incongruity in a Himalayan forest, mouldering in silence. Tibetans told me not to explore the place as it was infested with dre, ghosts. 
Only Nakbas could venture into such a place without risk. Nakbas. I'd heard of them in books by Anagarika Govinda and Alexandra David Nail. And although the stories of the latter seemed somehow suspect, I was hoping I'd meet one of these majestic mavericks of the marvellous, to whom the nature of mind was as familiar as a garden path. There was a photograph that haunted me, Ajo Repa Rinpoche, a Nakba wearing a white, widely pleated skirt, a striped shawl and a meditation strap across his chest. He wore conch spiral earrings. His uncut hair was wound up into a considerable topknot. I would always return to that picture. Every time I did, I had the same thought. This man knows what it's all about. Nakpas were people who inhabited the stratosphere of Vajrayana. They could be both part of the community and simultaneously entirely removed from mundane appearances. Wherever they lived, they lived in their own dimension, a tidal margin between the explicable and the inexplicable. I had no idea how I was going to find such an embodiment of visions, but I had time to wander and follow my nose. I'd just start asking questions and see where they led me. The point of departure was Amanorga's hut. Amanorga, Yeshe Kandro's aunt, was a splendid person. She made and sold chung, barley beer. But I was abstemious at the time, and so I never got to taste a drop of it. That was a pity. But Amanorga thought I was some sort of holy man because of that, and because I was vegetarian. I heard her voice every morning as she chanted the mantra of Chen Rezig. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme As she went wafting burning pine needles around the hut in a tin can with slit sides that had been bulged out like a lantern. The fragrance wafted through to the bedroom where I was usually just emerging from sleep. Her pure soprano lilt was living proof every morning that all was remarkably well with the world, whatever happened. I used to sit with Amanorga most evenings and test out my Tibetan. The walls of her living room, bedroom, shrine room were papered with pages from National Geographic magazines. And these gave us a wealth of opportunities for the exchange of language. I'd point to an animal and tell her what it was called in English. Horse. Then she'd tell me what it was in Tibetan. Ka. That's how it came to be that I know so many animal names in Tibetan. She taught me how to count in Tibetan and gave me useful words and phrases. I wrote everything down in Tibetan script 
but discovered later that Amanorga's spelling wasn't fantastically accurate. I learnt this from Sonam, a friend of Yeshe Kandro's at the School of Medicine and Astrology. Sonam became my Tibetan language teacher, and I worked every day to learn enough to get by. Yeshe Kandro wasn't to remain in MacLeod more than a month, as she was recently married to Amji Pemadorje, a Tibetan doctor, and she was going to join him at a clinic he'd set up in Boda, Nepal. She was simply remaining the month in order to complete her training. I shared a bedroom with Amanorga's son, Puntsog. He was a silversmith and his command of English was more than reasonable. I used to love watching him work. He made butter lamps, shrine boxes and all manner of wonderful things. He told me that there were two Nakmas in MacLeod Gange. One was an astrologer and a little doer. The other, Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche, was a weather maker, exorcist, and he was known to be cheerful. I had no interest in either of their sidelines vis-à-vis astrology, exorcism or weather making, but Cheerfulness sounded like my cup of tea. Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche lived up at Forsyth Bazaar. I planned to walk up and find him, but that didn't prove simple. And so, in the meantime, I enrolled at Gangchen Kishong. There I was to investigate Majamika Buddhist philosophy with Geshe Nyawang Dagye a course of studies which stood me in good stead in terms of logic and understanding emptiness. One weekend, not long after I'd arrived, I was walking down to MacLeod Gange, having spent the day watching the children dance at the Tibetan school in Forsyth Bazaar, when he hove into view. He was like a figure of legend and looked like Ajo Repa Rinpoche. Yes, he exclaimed loudly and merrily. Yes was his one word of English, and it was a damn good one with me. Who the hell wants to hear no? The Nakba turned out to be Lama Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche. He gesticulated, and somehow, with the aid of my extremely rudimentary Tibetan, got me to understand that I was to come to his hut the day after tomorrow. It was the hut up on the ridge, which is why I had not succeeded on finding it on my previous explorations. He pointed to the hut and said something that involved time. I knew enough Tibetan by then to know that an assignation was being arranged, but too many of the words eluded me. Sangin, I suggested. He shook his head at tomorrow, so I tried again. Sangin, Sangin. He nodded gleefully at that. Yes, Sangin, Sangin, he replied, and left me believing that I had to go to the hut on the ridge to which he was pointing on the tomorrow after tomorrow. We'd counted Tibetan numbers from one upward till we established time and all was set.
I had no idea what was said, but I was jolly pleased about it. I wasn't wearing Gurkha Changlo robes then, but he seemed to have some idea about me. The day arrived and I set out. The arrangements I'd understood were correct and I was expected. Food was enjoined upon me by Kandro Tenzindrolka, Yeshe Doje Rinpoche's wife. When I'd partaken of their delightful hospitality, I was ushered through to the shrine room, where sat about a dozen of the most fearsome Nakvas I had ever seen. Maybe fearsome isn't the right word, but I have no idea what other word to use. Awesome is cliched, and most other words fail to be serviceable. The Nakpas were from another time and another place, and I'd slipped sideways through time to a place where supernormal was as natural as a style in an English meadow, as contemporary as wop dop a bop a lop bamboo. They were like relatives of Ajo Rapa Rinpoche, and as soon as I saw them, I knew I'd arrived. Alien as the situation was, I felt right at home. Then the Inges arrived. They arrived late. They'd been told the time, but anyhow, there they were, looking vacant yet imperious. For reasons too bizarre to describe, I didn't count myself as an Inji. Well, not Inji of this stamp. It's not that I thought I was Tibetan, but I saw nothing incongruous about my presence in this hut with these Nakpas. The reason, most likely, was that I couldn't see myself, and so there was nothing to remind me that I was ethnically other. The Inges were there for only three days of the nine-day ceremony. They talked with me a little in the tea breaks, and despite the fact that I was evidently gauche, told me they wouldn't be there for the rest of the ceremony. The Dalai Lama was performing a ceremony and they'd be going there. They anticipated that I'd leave when they left, but I had other ideas on the matter. Thanks for the advice, I replied, but Rinpoche invited me to this ceremony, so I feel I should keep my commitment. They looked at me with incredulity. But His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's ritual is so much more important. It doesn't make sense to stay here. No one would miss His Holiness's ceremony. The blessings are inconceivable. It'll affect your future and prevent negative rebirths. I tried to look apologetic, although I was ever so slightly irked at their insistence. Yes, I'm sure you're right, but as I said, I accepted Rinpoche's invitation to spend the time here with him. I do not wish to change that. I regard it as an obligation that I would not break. But Yeshe Dorje won't mind you leaving. He understands that it would be far better for you to go to His Holiness's ceremony. This was getting ridiculous. Yes, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure Rinpoche wouldn't mind if I left. The problem is that I would mind. 
I'm not in the habit of breaking agreements I've made, not with anyone. I accepted Rinpoche's hospitality. I expressed pleasure in being allowed to be here. I will therefore not change the intention I expressed to him, no matter what I'd miss. I'd feel it dishonourable, and I don't like to act dishonourably. I'm sure you'll understand my freedom of choice in that. The honour word caused ill-conceived, ill-concealed ridicule. My freedom of choice was that of a lunatic. They regarded me as a prim moron. Excuse me. A prim moron with hardwired Victorian ethics. I was in Forsyth Bazaar, but I was right out of the Forsyth Sug.